Hi everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Cramopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm going to be talking to you about a prolific serial killer who has the highest victim count that I've ever covered on this podcast. Today's episode is going to be about American serial killer Joel Rifkin. I admittedly got sucked into this case during my final exam season, for better or for worse, but this case is a big one. Joel Rifkin took the lives of Heidi Balch, Julie Blackbird, Barbara Jacobs, Mary Ellen DeLuca, Young Lee, Lorraine Orvieto, Mary Ann Holloman, Iris Sanchez, Anna Lopez, Violet O'Neill, Mary Catherine Williams, Jenny Soto, Leah Evans, Lauren Marquez, Tiffany Bresciani, and at least two women who have remained unidentified to this day. With his confessed victim count being 17, and with many people believing there are possibly more, we have a lot to cover today. So I won't waste any more time. Let's jump right in. Joel David Rifkin was born on January 20th of 1959 to his birth parents who put him up for adoption less than a month later in February of that same year. Thankfully, Joel was adopted relatively quickly by an upper-middle-class family in Long Island, New York, with his new mom and dad being Jean and Bernard Rifkin. These two would name their newest adopted son Joel, and the family unit lived in a comfortable, modest home in East Meadow, Nassau County, Long Island, and eventually they would adopt another daughter who they named Jan. Bernard was a structural engineer and was the sole breadwinner for most of the children's lives, as Jean opted to be a stay-at-home mom with Jan and Joel until the two were a little bit older, when she eventually began fostering a career as a recreational therapist. For the couple, everything was pretty normal on a day-to-day -day basis. Jean and Bernard were hardworking parents while their kids went to school every day. Unfortunately for a young Joel Rifkin, despite his white picket fence life at home, all was not normal for him at school. Joel suffered from dyslexia, a condition that would make it difficult for him to read and write, and some people with this learning disability also struggle with math. Joel also suffered from a stutter, one that kids would tease him about incessantly. It's kind of a case of the chicken and the egg. Joel was awkward and unfortunately had no friends and was reportedly very socially awkward. Did he have no friends because he was socially awkward and he made people uncomfortable? Or did Joel become socially awkward with underdeveloped social skills because he didn't have any friends? It's kind of hard to say, but what we do know is that Joel was a sweet child, regardless of how awkward he was. But to the other kids in his class, his sweetness didn't matter. Kids were cruel to him about his stutter and lack of social skills, and they only worsened over time since his only real peer interactions he had were being bullied, so he tried to avoid them. In a jailhouse interview, obviously many years later, Joel Rifkin says that he recalls taking school one day at a time and adopting those exact avoidance habits I just mentioned, such as arriving late to school on purpose to avoid kids in the schoolyard. Joel would also stay late after classes and wait till everyone left just so that he could walk home alone in peace. From a very young age, Joel was learning to cope with hardship, and he began withdrawing into himself, spending hours alone in his room where he would sort his rock collection and spend time with his own thoughts. 
And that made up most of Joel's childhood, a young, awkward, scrawny kid struggling through the early years of his life in the same way that many of you maybe have dealt with bullies or someone you know has. But instead of coping with it, maybe seeking therapy later in life, being resilient like many people are, Joel just continued to withdraw into his own mind as the years went on. It was around age 11 or 10 when Joel's parents finally told him that he was adopted. If there was ever a breaking point for a young child being tormented every day at school and already going through a lot, I think this might be it. Around this time is when things started to get kind of dark for Joel. He was spending his solitary time spiraling into sexual fantasies. And this makes sense, I guess, because this is when he was hitting puberty, but the normal sexual fantasies that prepubescent and pubescent kids go through I think are a little bit different than what Joel was experiencing. Instead, these fantasies were not inherently sexual at first. Bear with me. At this age, Joel would sit in his room alone with his rock collection and his thoughts and develop fantasies about women fighting over him at 12 years old. If you know anything about this case, then you've probably heard this next part already. But these fantasies spiraled and progressed with such violence that at their peak, Joel was fantasizing about women ravaging each other to the death like gladiators over him. These fantasies were all centralized about Joel Rifkin being the prize that these women were fighting for, and again, this was taking place before he really knew exactly what sex was. They were purely just violent. But eventually, as you might have expected, they did spiral into incredibly deviated, violent sexual fantasies, but we will get to that soon. Joel Rifkin graduated from East Meadow High School in 1977 before being accepted to Nassau Community College with his academic interest being in horticulture. I'm not sure about you, but I had no idea what horticulture was. As an environmental science major, you would think I might have, but I had to Google it, so I'm going to expect that most of you are thinking, what the heck is that? Horticulture is an art form where people cultivate plants and herbs for ornaments and decor, but also for food and medicine. And people can also find themselves getting into larger scale lawn maintenance and yard care. However, Joel struggled in college and ended up leaving Nassau Community College and instead began taking classes at the State University of New York at Brockport before once again leaving and trying his luck at the University of Farmingdale. It's quite possible that Joel was struggling to do well in school because of the shame he felt from his childhood bullies. It seemed that he was struggling with his identity, and it seemed like a lot of this had to do with how deep his sexual fantasies had gotten at this point in his life, directly conflicting with the fact that he was still a virgin in real life. Let me be clear, there is nothing wrong with this and nobody should ever feel shame for a lack of or an abundance of sexual experiences. However, in Joel's mind, he was some sort of sexual god at the ripe age of 17 and was someone that women were fighting each other over every single day in his own mind. Joel's way to rectify this dissonance since he struggled enough making platonic friendships, let alone talking to women he was interested in, was to start soliciting sex from sex workers on the streets of New York. Keep in mind that this began when Joel was around 17 or 18 years old, in the early years of his college experience. Joel would roam around the streets of New York State at night in his mother's vehicle, I believe a Toyota pickup truck, and sometimes he would just watch, but as he got more comfortable, he began actually soliciting sex multiple times per night. 
This continued on through his college years, but unfortunately, Joel would drop out of college altogether before he graduated despite multiple attempts at trying to make it work, and he continued to live at home with his parents. Instead of pursuing a career in horticulture, Joel became a self-employed landscaper by day and a New York City prowler by night. His mother was thrilled that Joel seemed to take initiative with his new employment opportunity as a self-employed landscaper. She had watched him bounce between colleges and odd jobs, and just like during his childhood years, Joel was struggling to find his footing in life, but it seemed like this time he had really found it. His mother Jean was so thrilled, in fact, that she helped him purchase a 1978 Chevrolet van and a trailer for his business. And Joel would go on to purchase two more vehicles for his business, two Mazda pickup trucks, as well as he got a storage unit for all of his landscaping equipment, for the trailer, and given the nature of this episode, I'm sure you can imagine what else. Little did Jean know, however, that despite Joel seeming to acquire stability in his life, that he was actually struggling financially. But this wasn't necessarily because his business was doing poorly, and it's not like he had a ton of expenses other than the storage unit and vehicle payments because, again, he was still living with his parents in their family home. Joel was struggling financially because with every paycheck, Joel would use a sizable amount of it to continue paying for sex multiple times per night. It was evident that Joel had become addicted to the experience, but this addiction wasn't topical. His parents had no idea. But even if they did find out, Joel venturing out to solicit sex would be soon the least of their concerns as tragedy struck the family in 1987. Sometime in 1986, when Joel was 27 years old, his father Bernard was diagnosed with prostate cancer. This diagnosis was devastating and Bernard's suffering was relentless. On February 20th of the following year in 1987, Bernard Rifkin was discovered deceased in their family home in East Meadow after he died by suicide from a self-inflicted overdose. This was a huge family loss for the Rifkins, and now Joel was left at home with just his mother, a new widow. There isn't much information online about how his father's death affected Joel, but like I mentioned earlier regarding his tumultuous childhood experiences with bullies, this could have been a tipping point for him. Traumatic life experiences like the sudden death of a close family member in an unexpected way can trigger people to start behaving differently as they cope with the loss. This isn't news. But for Joel, it's possible that this event, compounded with everything he had already been through, might have sent him over the edge. Let me interject myself and make myself clear. I know that Joel Rifkin is a serial killer, and I'm not stating these events to get you to sympathize with him. His actions that I'm going to describe later on in the episode are very obviously inexcusable, and no amount of childhood trauma or loss can account for what he ended up doing to his 17 and likely many more victims. But I think these details are important to mention for context. With every hardship Joel Rifkin went through, instead of seeking help or coping in a healthy way, he continued to retreat into himself. This was a common theme in his life. And as a consequence of an already twisted individual now having multiple reasons to hate the world, he emerged as a violent man and inflicted unthinkable terror, ruining multiple families and only further perpetuating his trauma under other people. After his father's passing, Joel continued to visit sex workers over the course of the year, doing the same thing he did every night with them. That was until August 22nd of 1987, where he was arrested for trying to solicit sex from an undercover female police officer as a part of a prostitution sting operation in Hampstead, New York. 
But despite this brief run-in with the law and subsequent lull in sex work solicitation, he would be back at it before long. Joel had sexual fantasies that he couldn't satisfy on his own anymore, and he struck out every other time with women that he tried to hit on. Joel's violent fantasies, just as they did before in his childhood and teen years, began spiraling before long, and Joel once again found himself unable to control his urges. Not long after his arrest, Joel was already seeking out sex more and more often, as if it already didn't seem like a lot. And by the time of his first murder in 1989, where he took the life of Heidi Balch, he claims to have slept with over 300 sex workers in New York City. Heidi Balch was 25 years old when she met Joel Rifkin while working the streets of New York at night. Her street name was Susie Spencer, and that's what Joel knew her by. Heidi had several different aliases that she used while working the streets, which is why her family didn't report her missing initially. They knew she had fallen onto a difficult path in life, and it wasn't uncommon for her to disappear for a while, so to speak. But this was different. Joel's mother, Jean, was away on a business trip in March of 1989, and Joel was up to his usual activities. He geared up at night to drive around the streets of New York looking for sex. Something I have yet to mention about Heidi is that she was unfortunately addicted to drugs, and so when she was picked up by Joel Rifkin, she seemed much less interested in sex for money than she was interested in just drugs. But the two did have sex, from my research it seems like it happened in his car, and then Joel took Heidi to purchase drugs before taking her back to his own home in East Meadow. Heidi got high in the family bathroom, and then the two had sex again, but Joel began getting frustrated with Heidi because she kept asking him for more drug money. It continued this way for up to 10 hours. Joel was wanting to engage in sex, and Heidi was procrastinating and kept asking Joel for more money and rides around the city to get drugs. Consequently, because Joel wanted sex, he had spent most of the night driving Heidi around to get drugs because that was the only way she would offer it to him. But Joel felt like he was giving much more than he was getting, and so when Joel finally agreed to take her out once again for more drugs, as soon as they were about to leave the house, he instead grabbed a souvenir artillery shell and bludgeoned Heidi on the back of the head, rendering her unconscious. For the first time in his life, instead of retreating into himself in frustration, something inside of Joel snapped, and he decided that Heidi had to die as opposed to any of the other allegedly 300 sex workers he had been with. Joel then began to strangle Heidi, just as he had been doing in his own fantasies for years, and eventually, when she did die, he put her body in his basement. What happened next was panic. Joel had just killed a person. He became instantly paranoid, like he was having a bad trip, and he began peeking through his blinds, thinking police were immediately going to break down his door. He was sweating, he was afraid. Eventually though, after police didn't come, he passes out. After he sleeps for a few hours, he comes to and recalls in a jailhouse interview many years later that he actually has to convince himself that the whole thing even happened. After Joel woke up, he immediately went down into his basement and began poking at Heidi's lifeless body, just to make sure she was actually gone, to make sure this whole thing was real, and it very much was. The next morning, Joel knew that he had to dispose of the evidence, and so he began dismembering Heidi Balch and removing her fingernails and teeth so that she could remain unidentified after he disposed of her. In his own words, the goal here was to make the packages of her body as small as possible for easy disposal, essentially to make it easier for her to disappear forever, like trash. 
Joel Rifkin then put Heidi Balch's severed head into an empty paint can and left it on the seventh hole of a golf course in Hopewell, New Jersey. He disposed of her legs somewhere in the northern part of the state and dumped her arms and torso into the East River of New York City. Heidi's head was found only a short time after her death, and of course it made media headlines right away. Her legs were found a month later in the Pequannock Creek near Jefferson Township, New Jersey, but the parts of her body that were dumped into the East River have never been recovered. Even worse was that despite her head being found only shortly after she died, was that she remained unidentified for 24 years. The discovery of Heidi's head in the paint can panicked Joel once again. He recalled in an interview that for the longest time afterwards, he convinced himself that he actually didn't even do it. He was so dissociated from the incident that it wasn't even real to him anymore. But like typical Joel Rifkin, he began getting urges again. Urges that he just couldn't control. While reeling from the aftershock of his first murder, it wasn't long before Joel was back to his normal ways working as a landscaper during the day, and soliciting sex at night. The problem now was, Joel knew he could get away with murder. The police had not come for him yet. Nobody had. Nobody even knew that Heidi Balch was missing. All that anyone knew was that some girl's severed head was found in a paint can on a golf course, but nobody knew who she was. And before long, it didn't seem like anybody really cared. Joel's second victim, Julie Blackbird, was the daughter of James Stanley and Mary Elizabeth Blackbird. She was born in Houston, Texas, and came to New York City in search of career opportunities in the big city like many people do. But instead, Julie found herself enrolled into the School of Hard Knocks and in the throes of struggling on the streets. When Joel's mother, Jean, was out of town once again, Joel was instantly on the prowl and ran into Julie Blackbird. So, he did what he normally would do. He picked her up and took her back to his own home. Julie would stay with Joel in his home for hours, doing exactly what Joel wanted her to do with him and what she was being paid for. And when it was all over, Joel told Julie that he would take her to an ATM to withdraw extra money for her services. However, once again, just like he did with Heidi Balch, as soon as the two were about to walk out of the front door, Joel bludgeoned Julie from behind, but this time with a table leg. Without wasting any time, Joel began strangling Julie, and when she was gone, he dismembered her remains and placed them into cement for disposal in different parts of the Hudson River surrounding Manhattan. Joel says he didn't know exactly why he killed Julie. With Heidi, he was frustrated with her, he became violent, and unfortunately she had to lose her life because of his lack of self-control. But with Julie, Joel was instead experiencing a lack of self-awareness. Joel had already gotten sex out of Julie. They had spent the night together almost like a regular couple would. She catered to him, they had sex all night, they watched TV, they hung out, and frankly, they seemed to enjoy each other's company. But because Joel had only killed Julie after he had gotten his night's worth of sexual frustration out, Detectives hypothesized that Joel simply reached some sort of threshold in his mind where Julie was no longer of value to him, although Joel doesn't admit to this. Maybe he feels shame about this truth, or maybe Julie was never valuable to him in the first place. Unfortunately though, Julie's remains have never been found to this day, and there's no telling if they ever will be. After the murder of Julie Blackbird, there's a quiet period from Joel where he is back to soliciting sex after a full day's work as a landscaper without harming anybody. 
He was back to paying for sex and then dropping the girls off safely afterwards. He might have been scared, scared of police, scared of himself, it's unclear. What we do know is that eventually this quiet period did come to an end in July of 1991 when he picked up 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs, who was a sex worker in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Something interesting happens here when Joel takes Barbara home. In an interview later on, he recalls debating for a moment to himself whether or not he should kill Barbara or just fantasize about killing her. This kind of moment of clarity for someone as violent as Joel Rifkin is not common, especially for someone like Joel who was constantly enthralled by his own victim complex and deviated desires. This moment proves to many that Joel was in fact not insane at the time of these murders because he made a distinct choice to murder Barbara despite knowing full well that there was a viable option not to. I worded it this way because it will become important later, so keep this in mind. Just like his previous two victims, Joel bludgeons Barbara and renders her incapacitated and then strangles her to death. But this time, for whatever reason, Joel was careless with his disposal method. Barbara was found in a garbage bag floating in the Hudson River within hours of her being dumped there by some firefighters who were conducting a training exercise. But Joel didn't panic like he did with his previous crimes. He was feeling bold. He had gotten away with two murders already. He was becoming relaxed. This point in a serial murderer's career killings is typically when police are able to catch a break. The killer becomes careless and sloppy and unknowingly leaves behind clues to their identity. This makes it easier for police to find them, track them down, and stop them from being violent. Instead of panicking though, Joel began to try to identify with what he was doing. He started going into bookstores and libraries, trying to read about why he might be feeling these urges, and also reading about other serial killers and their methods, trying to get better at what he was doing. He said that he used these books about serial killers to learn more about them and how they got away with killing for so long. He was even inspired to begin collecting trophy items from victims, such as jewelry, ID cards, and more. He says he was especially interested in the Green River Killer, a man now known as Gary Ridgway, who was convicted of over 49 murders over the course of two decades, but he confessed to 71. Instead of police being able to track down Joel from his sloppy disposal job of Barbara Jacobs, Joel got away with yet another crime and was feeling frankly emboldened by how easy it all seemed. On Labor Day weekend in 1991, in the first few days of September, Joel runs into 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca. Joel was, once again, interested in sex, but Mary, like Heidi Balch, seemed more interested in drugs. Unlike Heidi, however, Mary was a lot more pushy and upfront about it, and had unfortunately just relapsed after being released from a rehabilitation center shortly prior. Joel did the same thing that he did for Heidi. He drove around to get drugs for Mary, hoping that eventually it would lead to sexual relations. And eventually, after some time, he thought he would be successful, as he convinced her to get a motel with him. I guess he was feeling hopeful that finally he would get what he was paying for, but when the two arrived at the motel, Mary was still not interested in sex. Joel did coerce her into sexual acts, 
but Mary became emotional and began venting to Joel about her life circumstances, her experiences in rehab, and how she was just feeling lost. At one point, Mary looked right at Joel and told him that she wanted to die. At only 22 years old, Mary Ellen DeLuca's life had spun out of control. And on this night, she was so distraught that she wasn't even able to provide the service that was her only stream of income. A normal person might have just left Mary somewhere else and picked up a different sex worker. But Joel sat there and let himself continue to get frustrated. And eventually, he just didn't want to hear it from her anymore. And so he grabbed Mary Ellen DeLuca from the front and just began strangling her. Joel Rifkin recalls Mary hardly resisting his attempts to strangle her, which is why he was just able to grab her from the front and start strangling her without bludgeoning her like the rest of his victims. This to him signaled that she really did want to die. In his own words, he said that, quote, if she didn't, she would have just fought back. But Joel didn't kill her because he had some sort of delusional idea that he was doing her a favor. Joel killed Mary Ellen DeLuca because he was frustrated about having to hear her speak about so much of her own life. Maybe it was too humanizing for him, maybe it was annoying, maybe he wasn't thinking at all. But many people believe that he was, again, so enthralled with his own victim complex that he couldn't fathom how anyone dared to complain about how hard their life was. So, he killed her, and he dumped her remains in a wooded area approximately 60 miles north of New York City in Cornwall, where she would be found a month later, but not identified until 1993. In the same month that Joel Rifkin killed Mary DeLuca, he also picked up 31-year-old Yun Lee, who was originally born in Korea. Joel had actually had relations with Yun before, as she was a sex worker in New York City. And so this interaction between Joel and Yun Lee was not their first, and it was also not Joel's first time that night soliciting sex. When he was with Yun, he allegedly became frustrated that he wasn't able to perform. In a fit of rage, or maybe in a fit of impulse because he now knows how easily he can brutalize sex workers if he wants to end uncomfortable situations, he began striking Yun Lee and then strangled her in his car. Yun was stuffed into a steamer trunk, which is like an old treasure chest, kind of, and he dumped her body in the East River just off of Randall's Island, east of Manhattan, where she would be found only a few days later. This murder was very different than the others. Firstly, he had killed Yun Lee in his vehicle, and secondly, the murder happened only a few weeks after his last, which was a huge deviation from his usual wait period. Joel was seeing what he thought to be true finally come to reality. For him, it was easy to kill sex workers. So why wait? Why not indulge? This disgusts me for obvious reasons, but something I want to point out is that this way of thinking often only happens surrounding violence against sex workers. People who make a living exchanging sexual acts for money are often thought to be in the lowest bracket of societal give-a-fucks, which results in them being at a high risk for violence, and unfortunately, also at a high risk for being completely disregarded by police. Police would later admit, actually, that they had no idea this many women were even missing, and oftentimes when other sex workers would come forward saying that their friends and colleagues from the streets are missing, they're ignored. It's the same reason why all of the information online about these victims is extremely limited, with the exception of a few, like Heidi Balch, who was his first. And all of the information about her online is about the discovery of her head in the paint can. 
This is why Joel Rifkin felt so confident in being able to kill so many women. It was because of their occupation. He knew that they were not protected by society or police. This gave Joel a sense of weird delusional power over these women, a power that he'd always wanted but never had, the same weird power that he felt in his gladiator fantasies. And so what did he do next with this newfound power? He went on a killing spree where he killed 11 more people over the span of 16 months. Joel Rifkin murdered 28-year-old Lauren Orvieto near Christmas of 1991, and she grew up in an upper-middle-class home in Long Island, New York, and she was working as an accountant before she fell on hard financial times. Lorraine was strangled by Joel after being picked up for sex and placed into an oil drum before being thrown into the Coney Island Creek. Lorraine's remains would be found six months later on July 11th of 1992 and would be identified a year later in 1993. Joel also murdered Mary Ann Holloman, who was 39 and working as a seamstress. Mary was walking alone at night, and Joel picked her up, but it's unclear if she was also a sex worker, but either way, she ended up in Joel Rifkin's vehicle, and to him, it didn't matter. At this point, he was just enjoying himself. Joel strangled Mary Ann Holloman and stuffed her into an oil drum before throwing her also into the Coney Island Creek, just like Lorraine Orvieto. Mary's remains were actually found two days before Lorraine's were, on July 9th of 1992, and yet police still made no connection. Joel's next victim was 25-year-old Iris Sanchez, who was a sex worker and was unfortunately addicted to crack cocaine. Rifkin strangled Iris during their sexual acts, and while feeling especially bold, he covered her body in an old mattress and dropped her fully clothed body off near the John F. Kennedy International Airport in Queens, New York, where she remained like that for over a year before she was discovered. 33-year-old Anna Lopez was found on May 25th of 1992 in Patterson, New York, after being picked up by Joel Rifkin and paid for sex before being strangled. Anna's remains were found by an unsuspecting truck driver only 24 hours after she was dumped into the woods off of Interstate 84. Violet O'Neill was just 21 years old when she was picked up by Joel, paid for sex, and then strangled back at Joel's mother's house while, again, she was away. Violet was dismembered in Joel's bathtub, and her partial remains would be found in four different places in the summer of 1992. Her torso was found in the Hudson River in New York State, partial remains were found in the Harlem River at 123rd Street, some were found in the East River at 23rd Street, and some were found near Governor's Island, just southwest of the Brooklyn Bridge. In December of 1992, the remains of 31-year-old Mary Catherine Williams were found in Yorktown, New York. Mary Catherine Williams had actually dated Joel Rifkin before, which is the only mention I've ever found on the internet of him ever having any sort of monogamous relationship. Mary was from Charlotte, North Carolina, and she was her high school's homecoming queen. Doris Williams, Mary's mother, says that her daughter was a struggling actress in New York, and her addiction to crack cocaine unfortunately led her to sex work on the streets to fund her drug use. After Joel picked up Mary Catherine Williams, he ended up smothering her to death after his strangling attempt didn't work, as she was asleep, assumably in his passenger seat, when she woke up while he was trying to strangle her, and so he resorted to smothering. A month prior to Mary Catherine Williams' remains being found, the remains of 23-year-old Jenny Soto were located on the shores of the Harlem River in South Bronx, New York. 
Jenny Soto was picked up by Joel Rifkin for the same reason as all the others. She was interested in money for sex, and he was too, but he was also interested in killing her. However, Jenny Soto did not go down without a fight and made it incredibly difficult for Joel to get control over her. Rifkin began to strangle Jenny in the same way he had done before, but Jenny Soto struggled a lot. When she was found, all 10 of her fingernails were broken and traces of skin were underneath the partial fingernail remains. As well, Jenny had a broken neck because Joel had to resort to snapping it after strangulation didn't seem to successfully subdue her. Jenny's body had been dropped over a sort of rocky cliff landing at the edge of the Harlem River on Lincoln Avenue. From the maps I've looked at, I can't tell if there's actually a cliff there or if it's just a small drop-off at the edge of the road where the Harlem River is. Either way, when she was found, she was wearing nothing but an orange and red striped t-shirt. The large gold shell earrings that Jenny was known to be last wearing, as well as her wallet full of photos of her and her boyfriend were missing. This murder was also another unique one. Joel had never experienced a victim fighting back with such brute force, and now he was covered in abrasive wounds that he would have to create a story for. There were likely many moments during this struggle where he was unsure if he could maintain control over Jenny, and because of that, for the first time since 1991, Joel Rifkin took a 15-week break from killing. However, this break would end in the beginning of 1993 when the 28-year-old mother of two, Leah Evans, was picked up by Joel Rifkin. Leah had begun to create a career out of sex work for herself on the streets of New York, despite living at home with her mom. But there's not a whole lot of information as to why she did this. It's hard to say if maybe she was dealing with addiction, or maybe she just needed extra money to support her children. Unfortunately though, the dangers that come with being on the streets include being picked up by people like Joel Rifkin. In February of 1993, Joel picked her up in his vehicle and took Leah to an abandoned parking lot to engage in sex acts. Apparently, Leah demanded more privacy from Joel as she undressed in his vehicle, and I guess he found this offensive for some reason because he became frustrated and began to strangle her in a rage once they finished having sex. After Leah had died, Joel drove to the eastern part of Long Island where he buried her in a shallow grave in Suffolk County. Leah Evans would be the only victim ever disposed of like this, unlike all the others who were dismembered and slash or shoved into oil drums and dumped into the waterways along New York State. She was the only one who was buried. Hikers would find Leah's remains in May of 1993, when one of them noticed what looked like a hand sticking up from the dirt. This, to me, is another show of Joel's brazen and carelessness, but he didn't stop here. 30-year-old Lauren Marquez, originally from Tennessee, was picked up by Joel Rifkin along the streets of 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. The two drove to a point near the Manhattan Bridge, where Joel paid Lauren for sex before strangling her until she died. Like Jenny Soto, Lauren Marquez also fought for her life and was found in the summer of 1993 in the Long Island Central Pine Barrens with fractured ribs and a broken neck. It seemed that although Jenny Soto fighting him back frightened him, he now knew how to subdue a victim if they decided to fight for their life. Before I move on to Joel's last identified victim, something I neglected to mention and something that you might have noticed if you've been keeping count is that I haven't yet talked about all 17 victims. There are two, possibly three, and likely many more unidentified victims that lost their lives at the hands of Joel Rifkin. 
Number six, as she is lovingly referred to, also known as the Manhattan Jane Doe, was murdered in 1991 or 1992, sources do vary, like much of the information does about Jane Doe's. And Joel would later recall to police that he picked her up on West 46th Street in Manhattan and strangled her after sex like he did with almost every other victim. The Manhattan Jane Doe was placed in an oil drum and was dumped into Newtown Creek, which branches off into the East River and into the Brooklyn area. Number six's remains have never been found and she has never been identified. Joel didn't bother to remember her name or anything about her, just that he knew he had killed more people than were identified. Another unidentified victim, number nine, also known as the Kings County Jane Doe, was also dumped into the Newtown Creek at North Henry Street after being stuffed into an oil drum. The victim was found with condoms filled with drugs like balloons in her stomach, and so when she was discovered by sanitation workers, they thought she was a drug mule and it's unclear how much real effort went into solving her murder because of this. However, upon Joel Rifkin's arrest, which we'll get to shortly, he admitted to killing this woman, which was confirmed when he was able to identify her tattoos. There is another Jane Doe, who isn't mentioned in many articles, so it's hard to verify that this murder even really did occur. But if it did, it would fit Joel's modus operandi, or MO, and would align with the timeline of his 1992 murder spree. This unidentified victim, known as number 10 in some sources, was apparently dumped into the Harlem River after Joel strangled her after sex. Again, it was hard to verify this information and I'm still not sure of it, but the killing does fit the bill in every aspect, the right method, the right area, the right timeline, so it's really hard to say. But this would put Joel's victim count at 18 and not 17. On June 24th in 1993, Joel Rifkin picked up a 22-year-old sex worker by the name of Tiffany Bresciani. Tiffany was working on the streets of Manhattan at this time, but she was originally from Louisiana and came to New York City to pursue acting and dance. Bresciani was in a serious relationship with a man named Dave Rubenstein, a New York City punk rock artist in a band called Ragin' Youth. Ragin' Youth was a left-wing, anti-racist band who created music using political satire and drawing inspiration from hardcore conservative American values, and they were quite successful in their youth. However, by the late 1980s, the band was feeling burnt out from touring and not really making any money. Several of the band members were using drugs, including Dave, who had developed a serious heroin addiction, and inevitably, the band broke up. On the night of June 24th, Tiffany and Dave were together on the streets of Manhattan, with Tiffany engaging in sex work for money to fund both of their drug habits, especially so now that Dave was no longer a part of Reagan Youth. This was an agreed-upon arrangement by the couple, so it was not out of the ordinary for a man like Joel Rifkin to pull up on them and offer money in exchange for Tiffany's services. Tiffany told her boyfriend Dave that she would be back in about 20 minutes, and so she got into Joel's 1984 Mazda pickup truck before driving away. However, Tiffany didn't return 20 minutes later. In fact, she never returned at all. Her boyfriend Dave was quick to notify police with a description of Joel's vehicle, but again, Tiffany was a sex worker, and so it's unclear if any real initiatives were even taken by police to go looking for her at this time. As you might have expected, Joel killed Tiffany in the same way that he killed all his other victims. After sex, he strangled her, and then he put her body in the back of his Mazda pickup truck so he could dispose of her the way he'd like to. Except there was one problem. 
When Joel got home with Tiffany Bresciani in the bed of his truck, his mother was in a bit of a panic and demanded his car keys because she had to run an urgent errand. The entire time that his mother was gone, during her 30-minute errand in his vehicle, he was panicking, obviously because there was a 22-year-old dead woman in the bed of that truck. But his mom left and came back after running errands, being none the wiser, the whole time Tiffany was in the back. Joel Rifkin was able to keep his cool in front of his mom until he could remove Tiffany from the bed of his truck without anyone noticing, which is when he put her body in a wheelbarrow inside of his garage where she would stay for the entire weekend. That following Monday on June 28th of 1993, Joel was gearing up to dispose of Tiffany's decomposing remains, so he loaded her back into the bed of his truck after wrapping her in a tarp and headed out. There was only one glaring problem that Joel didn't even seem to notice. As he had almost perfected his method of body disposal, but he forgot one key detail. The rear license plate on the back of his Mazda pickup truck was missing. This missing license plate caught the attention of officers Sean Ruane and Deborah Sparjarin, who were patrolling the Long Island Southern State Parkway at this time. As Joel sped past them, the officer signaled him to pull over because of his missing license plate. But just as Joel had done in the past when he thought police were catching on to his murders, he panicked and he started running. Joel did not pull over his truck. Instead, he began speeding away as police chased him down the parkway, lights, sirens, and all. Eventually, the police officers called for backup, and at the chase's peak, there were three cars after him, all while dead Tiffany Bresciani was wrapped in a tarp in the back of his truck. It was at this point when Joel veered off the road and into a utility pole which collapsed onto his car. It's unclear if this was intentional, he was trying to commit suicide, or if he just lost control, but he was uninjured from this crash. When police were able to apprehend him, they obviously had a lot of questions. Number one, being why the hell did this guy just make such a dramatic run for it if all we were interested was his rear license plate? What else could he be up to? All the questions they had would soon be answered, as when police were trying to get Joel's information, they noticed a strong, foul odor coming from the back of the truck. And it didn't take very long into the vehicle search for police to discover 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani, and right there at the scene, Joel Rifkin said to them, I killed her. She was a prostitute. Police immediately detained Joel and brought him back to the state police barracks in the Farmingdale area of Long Island. Police had unknowingly just stumbled on the scene of somebody trying to dispose of a body. And if they already didn't have a lot of questions for him before this, they certainly had a lot of questions now. Rifkin's initial interrogation proved to be very eventful. He willingly confessed to all 17 murders without a lawyer present. Joel would later go on to claim that he was denied a lawyer, which does go against the Sixth Amendment in the United States, but transcripts of the interrogation would go on to tell a very different story. While sitting with them, Joel wrote down all of the names of the victims that he could remember. Most of them were street names, but he also drew maps of where bodies were located. This was tricky to navigate, as with Heidi Balch, for example, many sex workers used multiple street names and aliases, and it wasn't uncommon for families not to hear from them, so often they don't get reported missing in a timely fashion. 
Despite Joel only recalling Heidi by the name Susie, investigators were able to put together that the way he described his first murder back in 1989, it seemed to match up evenly with the partial remains found that same year, including a decapitated head in a paint can at the seventh hole of a golf course. After putting the pieces together, they figured out that he must have been responsible for this one, but now the new task would be trying to identify her, which all this time later still didn't happen. According to New Jersey State Police Detective Steve Urbanski, they tried to identify Heidi Balch by working backwards in police records. Officers got straight to work combing the criminal databases for all arrestees picked up by the New York Police Department's 9th Precinct for prostitution offenses around the time of Heidi's disappearance. In their search, only one Susie came up, someone named Susie Spencer. Later on, it was discovered that there was a Susan Spencer reported missing in 2001, despite her being last seen in 1995, and the person who reported this Susie missing was the woman's aunt. Police were able to get in contact with this aunt and showed her the arrest photo of Susie, to which the aunt exclaimed, that's her, that's Heidi, she uses the name Susan Spencer. The next step was using DNA from the aunt to see if the head in the paint can was a match, and it was. Police had to rework and retrace steps like this for each of the 17 victims, and yet there is still so much information unknown about them. For example, there are at least two still unidentified women who Joel Rifkin murdered, possibly more. Police admitted that they didn't even know a lot of these women were missing. Like I said earlier, sex workers do not get the same respect or protection that other citizens do. Police drew no connections to the multiple bodies found in the area, and instead, Joel Rifkin was able to run rampant and target them. You may be thinking, this is kind of anticlimactic. Why work so hard to conceal evidence if you're just going to give it all up once you've been arrested? A lot of serial killers will taunt police, they'll refuse to give up information, and so that police have to continue expending resources in order to uncover the true breadth and depth of their crimes. And the interrogating police would agree that this whole situation seemed kind of odd. The investigators were struck with Joel's demeanor. He was so calm. He told them upfront that there were 17 victims, and he was fully willing to confess and recount every detail as if he was listing off what he had for breakfast in the morning. In fact, a forensic anthropologist was hired to reconstruct Leah Evans' face when she was discovered buried in the shallow grave in Suffolk County, but Joel had readily confessed to the whole thing and given up her identity before the reconstruction was even finished. Through this very comprehensive confession, it was discovered that Joel committed many of the murders in his East Meadow home where he lived with his mom, and most of his victims, like I've been mentioning, were sex workers. However, his victim choice was erratic. Don't forget that he would continuously be paying for sex and sleeping with sex workers, but it was only a select few out of the hundreds that he paid for that were murdered. He would store bodies in that storage unit he purchased initially for his landscaping business, big surprise, and when he began feeling paranoid early on into his murders, he invested in oil drums to store bodies in before disposal. Joel would slice off the women's fingertips and pull out their teeth attempting to have them remain unidentified for as long as possible. But the most sickening information that I'll spare you the gory details of is that he compared the dismemberment of his victims to a high school biology class with a dissection, and he compared it to carving a Thanksgiving turkey. The day after Joel Rifkin was arrested during what was supposed to be a routine traffic stop for a missing license plate, Joel met with his defense attorney, Robert Sale. 
As I alluded to before, Joel actually denied his right to an attorney present during the interrogation, saying that he didn't need one, but now was backtracking and saying that police questioned him unfairly and had left him also without his glasses, which gave him a migraine. It seemed that Joel was already trying to build a defense here. He was trying to plant the seeds of a false confession and police misconduct. After a brief meeting with this lawyer, Joel sat before Judge John Kingston and entered a preliminary plea of not guilty for the murder of Tiffany Bresciani. His argument was that he knew her body was in his trunk, but he just didn't know how it got there. The defense was able to secure a two-week trial postponement so they could gather more evidence and begin to elaborate on their defense strategy, one that Joel had already begun sowing the seeds for. And during the initial interrogation is when police arrived at Joel's mom's house in East Meadow to execute a search warrant to do the same thing, to try and boost up their arguments, to try and gather more evidence, because clearly this guy was a serial killer and it was time to make him pay for his crimes. Police told his mother, Jean Rifkin, that her son had been arrested during a traffic accident and was being detained for an unspecified crime. But shortly after, the news broke to the media that a possible serial killer, with a victim count of as high as 17, and possibly more, including 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani, had been arrested. Unfortunately, after Tiffany's murder was made public, Dave Rubenstein, her boyfriend, committed suicide a week later. During police's execution of the search warrant on the East Meadow home is when they discovered the various trophies that Joel Rifkin had kept from his victims employment ID cards, AIDS medication, Jenny Soto's panties and a syringe with her DNA on it, Leah Evans' driver's license, Mary Catherine Williams' credit card, all adding up to a staggering 228 items that Joel Rifkin had kept from the women that he had killed. They also discovered the wheelbarrow in the garage where Joel had kept Tiffany Bresciani throughout the weekend after he'd murdered her. And they discovered that it had fresh blood on it, but upon testing, not all of it belonged to Tiffany Bresciani. While police were processing evidence for the other murders that Joel had confessed to, Joel's defense attorney, Robert Sale, tried to have Joel's interrogation confession thrown out on the grounds that police allegedly could not prove that he was offered a lawyer. But again, transcripts say otherwise, so this didn't work. Robert Sale's next move was to try and have the trial moved to an area closer to where Joel grew up in Nassau County. The thinking here was that a quote-unquote hometown jury might be more sympathetic to Joel because Joel had now expressed intentions to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, instead of trying to argue police misconduct because it was evident to him and his lawyer that that wasn't going to work. However, this was also unsuccessful, and I think it was because of this that Joel ended up firing Robert Sale, and instead, Joel opted to hire the former assistant district attorney for Nassau County, Michael Soschnick, and another defense attorney, John Lawrence. These two picked up right where Robert Sale left off and began arguing to get the interrogation confession thrown out, including the confession of Tiffany Bresciani's murder at the scene of Joel's arrest when he said, I killed her, she was a prostitute. However, this time, his defense team was trying to get this thrown out because they alleged that police did not have probable cause to search his truck at the time of the accident. But this was also thrown out. As the defense continued to delay the trial and argue that certain pieces of evidence should be thrown out, the current assistant district attorney for the prosecution, not Joel's defense lawyer, Fred Klein, offered Joel Rifkin a plea deal to get the process moving along. Fred Klein offered Joel 46 years to life for the murder of Tiffany Bresciani in exchange for a guilty plea, 
but Joel Rifkin was not interested in admitting guilt in a court of law. He was convinced that his not guilty by reason of insanity plea would set him free. So he rejected the plea deal. And this entire process was being held before Judge Ira Wexner, who admittedly was getting sick of Joel's shit and was tired of watching the defense grasp at straws for their client, trying to rescue a serial killer who had already confessed. So a trial was scheduled definitely for mid-April of 1994, almost a year after his arrest. Because none of his motions worked yet again, Joel fired his attorney Michael Soshnick and left John Lawrence, a lawyer with no solo criminal defense experience, to fend for Joel on his own. When the trial finally did begin, Joel went in with his insanity plea and opening statements started up with Fred Klein, the prosecution, who argued to the seven men and five women jury that Joel Rifkin was a sexual sadist who was caught red-handed and was now trying to abuse mental illness in order to get away with it. Psychiatrist Barbara Kerwin testified for the prosecution that Rifkin's jailhouse psychological evaluation that happened a few weeks prior came back as the most deviated and pathological she had seen in her 20 years of practice. Another expert witness for the prosecution, Dr. Park Dietzem, said Rifkin was sick but not insane, that he knew exactly what he was doing. If you recall, I told you before that when Joel Rifkin murdered 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs, he contemplated to himself whether or not he should even do it. He contemplated right versus wrong. The prosecution spelled out to the jury what kind of man Joel Rifkin really was and what he confessed to during his interrogation in order to fully articulate that these murders were not committed by someone who was mentally ill or didn't have their faculties about them. Joel Rifkin knew what he was doing to all 17 of his victims. He just didn't care. And it only took two and a half hours for the jury to reach a guilty verdict for the murder of Tiffany Bresciani. The evidence was so, so strong against Rifkin for this one. And over the course of the next few years, Joel would end up accumulating a total prison sentence of 203 years, but for only nine out of the 17 murders. He was sentenced in Suffolk County for the murders of Leah Evans and Lauren Marquez. He was sentenced in Queens for the murder of Iris Sanchez. He was sentenced in Brooklyn for the murders of Lorraine Orviato, Mary Ann Holloman, and the 1992 Jane Doe, number six. It's unclear from my research why Joel wasn't charged for all murders. It could be because of legal formalities in different counties with using the interrogation confession. It could be due to insufficient evidence to back up the confession. It could be any number of things. But one thing was absolutely clear. Joel Rifkin was a violent serial killer, whether or not he was convicted of all 17 murders. He had a sizable victim count and no remorse for his crimes, and was clearly too dangerous to be let out on the streets. Judge Robert Hanafy, during the trial for Iris Sanchez's murder in Queens, New York, knew this. During Rifkin's sentencing hearing, Justice Hanafy stated that as he was not entitled to hand down the death penalty since Iris's murder occurred before New York State reenacted capital punishment, he did state this, If there's such a thing as reincarnation, I want to be sure that you spend the rest of your second life in prison also. Today, in 2021, Rifkin says he feels more at home in prison. Detectives think that this is because when you're in a maximum security facility in a high-risk unit, you're surrounded by like-minded sexual deviants, so nobody really bats an eye at you if you're a serial murderer. Joel has clearly made peace with everything he did to all 17 and possibly many more victims. Evidently, making peace with it was not very hard for him to do. Joel has never expressed genuine remorse, 
In his own words, he sees his victims as objects and never once did think of them as mothers, sisters, friends, or even just people. During a jailhouse interview, Joel recalled that at times when he was strangling his victims, he would look directly at them, almost through them, but other times, he would simply just stare into space, not even paying attention. When he was asked by the interviewer how this made him feel about himself, how it felt to strangle people to death, Joel just gave a deadpan stare. He didn't know what to say. He doesn't know how he feels about it because he doesn't feel anything at all. I had never heard of Joel Rifkin before I started researching this case. I'll be honest, it was sent to me by suggestion and I was intrigued. It's not very often that I'm suggested the case of a prolific serial killer who I've never heard of before. I've been consuming true crime content for years and not once have I stumbled upon the serial murders of Joel Rifkin. It made me think about why, and I think it's for the same reason that I mentioned before. Joel killed sex workers, and he wouldn't have gotten caught, frankly, if he didn't run from police during that traffic stop. Rifkin could have very easily pulled over his truck with Tiffany Bresciani in the back and played it cool, getting away with only a ticket for having a missing rear license plate. It's not very difficult to think of what would have continued happening if Joel just did that that day, just played it cool, gotten away with a ticket, and continued to get away with murder. There is hardly any information online about each of these victims, aside from some information about Tiffany, Heidi Balch, Julie Blackbird, and a few others. But Yun Lee, Violet O'Neill, Anna Lopez, there is hardly any information about these women online, especially nothing about their lives or why they mattered. The only information about them is that they were killed by Joel Rifkin. And this isn't usually the case for murder victims. It's very often that I'll do a lot of reading about both the murderers and the victims' early lives and what they were like before whatever happened to them. But there has been hardly any news reports or any sort of journalism about the early lives of these victims. And it's the same reason why Joel Rifkin would have inevitably kept killing if he didn't get caught. Because he knew he could get away with it. Because he knew that these sex workers were not a priority to police, journalists, or really anybody. Although Joel claims that one day he told himself he would always stop, but these were just ideas and plans. He never actually did try to stop killing people. In one interview, he said that he was going to try and pull a Unabomber. And I think what he means by this is to emulate the same lifestyle as the infamous Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Ted grew up in Chicago, Illinois, USA, and even taught at the University of Berkeley before settling into a rundown 10 by 14 cabin in the woods near Lincoln, Montana. Ted lived here completely isolated away from society, and over the course of 17 years, he mailed and hand-delivered handmade bombs that would go on to kill three Americans and injure almost two dozen more. Kaczynski's victims were chosen completely at random. He would go into a public library and use their databases to find people's names and target them. He also used scrapped materials to build his bombs, which is why the FBI had such a hard time locating him. The materials he used to create the explosives were not unique to any location. Eventually, the Unabomber sent a 35,000-word manifesto to the FBI, which was published in the Washington Post. And after a 17-year-long domestic terror spree, Ted's brother, Dave Kaczynski, read this manifesto in the Washington Post and used it to help identify that the Unabomber was in fact his own brother. So when Joel Rifkin says, quote-unquote, pull a Unabomber, 
He could either mean that he intended to stop killing, get an isolated cabin in the woods and live off the land, using his paychecks for survival instead of sex workers, or he could refer to wanting to continue his killing spree until he ruined the lives of as many people as the Unabomber did. Thankfully, we will never have to know if Joel Rifkin would ever reoffend because he is eligible for parole in the year 2197 at the ripe old age of 238 years old. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Crimopedia. I hope you enjoyed this one. And I hope all of my student listeners are doing well. It's been a long semester, but now that final exams are here in North America, I know that we can all get through them together. Make sure you take care of yourself and take a break when you can to unwind, which sounds like a perfect time to binge the rest of my episodes. You can also check out my 12 Days of True Crime series happening on my Instagram at Crimopedia Pod. Stay safe, everybody, and I will see you here for the next episode. <music> <laughs>